The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is X, and this is The Candid Frame. With relations between the U.S. and Cuba warming up over the past year, there has been an explosion of interest in the country, which is only 330 miles from Miami. It's quickly becoming the hot destination for tourists, and especially photographers, who are eager to capture classic Cuba before it's possibly transformed by tourism and commercial development. There's no doubt that it's a visually stimulating country, which in some respects has been partially frozen in time because of politics and economics. But if you want to go beyond the cliches of vintage cars and cigar-chomping grandmothers, you have to look for photographers who are committed to doing more with their cameras than simply capturing the obvious. Anna Mia Davidson began her 10-year exploration of Cuba just as the country was recovering from no longer having the economic support of the former Soviet Union. Spurred by curiosity and a sense of social injustice, she found a way to spend extensive time in Cuba for over a decade. The resulting photographs, which are found in her new book, Cuba Black and White, reveals a Cuba that is as complex as it is beautiful. The time working on this project also served to inform the work that she's done subsequently documenting the world of sustainable farming here in the United States. The book and her story is not just a document of a single project, but a glimpse into the long journey of one very talented photographer. Welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Um, I want to start by simply asking you, why Cuba? What was it about the country that piqued your curiosity so much that you felt, I've got to go there? You know, I think really back in 1999 when I when I had this idea and I was inspired to go, it was almost like the forbidden fruit. I I had a sense of social justice and kind of what it was on my radar as being, you know, the embargo being um questionable in my mind as to whether that was that was fair and just and right and there was sort of this de facto embargo going on at the time of, of information about Cuba and images about Cuba coming here. And so I felt like I wanted to go there and sort of seek out somewhat of the truth, some kind of an understanding from my own perspective. There's, there's no shortage of social injustice in, in this country and in, in, you know, in other parts of the world. What was what was the allure of of Cuba specifically? I mean, you you, you say you were you're you know you're very socially conscious uh, in many respects, but what was it about that particular country? What was it that was such a draw as opposed to another story that you could have told photographically? Right. I mean, I think I think ultimately it was like because there was this embargo, and as an American citizen, we're forbidden to go there um, and freely travel to Cuba. There was it was of interest to me. To, to go somewhere where I wasn't supposed to be, you know, that's sort of almost, you might call it rebellious. Yeah. You might call it, you know, adventure seeking or curious, um, in some regards. 
I had done quite a bit of social justice work in America, and that is important to to look in your own backyard and tell stories and show images from you know right from your own your own sense of home. But at that moment in my life, in my uh, early twenties, it was a time to explore and to you know to kind of go outside my comfort zone and see sort of what the world held. There are many stories around the world that one can tell. I think it's wherever grabs you, what speaks to you. I felt like the notion of someplace being illegal to go to somehow struck a chord with me. And I wanted to know, I wanted to see it for my, my, for myself through my own eyes and know what that was. So how did you go about making this, this happen? Um, because it's slightly different than it is now in terms of access. Why don't you tell us what it was like during that period of time and what you had to do in order to you know, be able to go to the country uh, and, and make your photographs? Yeah, you know, so to begin with, I actually had heard that there was going to be the first ever photographic workshop between the U.S. and Cuba run at the time by main photographic workshops, a gentleman by the name of David Lyman at the time was running the program and it was going to be the first, you know, the first one, the first guinea pig model of this where they were going to try and bring together uh, photographers from the United States with photographers from Cuba and do somewhat of a, of an exchange. I heard about this and it was right in the time when I was wanting to go to Cuba and I thought this might be perfect because I'd be able to go legally uh, quote unquote, you know, for the first time, I'd be going under some kind of permission through the government there because it was a, an arranged program. So I thought, you know, for my first time out of the gates, first time to Cuba, this might be the way to go. It also might, you know, give me some insight into the country and some kind of um, grounds to be there, so to speak, maybe even to, to meet people, et cetera, um, and start my story from there. So that's how I went originally. I went with this initial workshop and it was it was amazing because it really was this exchange between what were about six American photographers and the, uh, about six Cuban photographers. And they were all of my generation and we created very long lasting friendships. It was on that first initial trip that I was so inspired to to extend my stay and to kind of explore some stories within Cuba that I had been inspired by. And so I did. I stayed an extra couple of months uh, long after the workshop ended and everyone left. I stayed on and I hitchhiked from one end of the island to the other. And I began my visual exploration and what would become an almost decade-long project where I would come and go and come back and forth. So that was the first trip. The second trip, I actually asked the main photographic workshops. I asked David Lyman if I could assist the workshops and be paid so that that would actually kind of cover my expenses for this project that I was starting on my own, independently funded. And it was after that that I then was able to get sponsorship and I was able to do some different articles. And I sort of piecemealed my my project together after that. So the first two trips were legal and I had permission to be there and I was there as a photojournalist. And after that, I always just went illegally and it was just much easier that way. Mm-hmm. I just got a tourist visa and I would just um, roam 
the country. How important was the relationships with the Cuban photographers in the work that you did there? Uh, I, I can imagine that they, they probably probably provided you a perspective in terms of how to see Cuba, how to see its people, how to see its culture in a way that you might not have had the opportunity to had you just gone in based on your own experiences and your own you know ideas of what the country and the people were like. You know, it really did. And the the friendships I made, I value to this day. I still I still keep in touch and see many of my friends that I made during that time period. This is almost, you know, you know, back in 1999 was when we started to become friends. So a long time we've been friends now. And it was a special time of my life. I was I was young, I was carefree, and I was open to meeting new friends and making friends. And I felt like it was, it really did allow me to see the country in a very special and specific way. And um, it was a real privilege to get to be let in uh, in an intimate way into people's lives. I would say that it definitely shaped how I would see Cuba visually and how I would grow to understand it uh, intellectually. Um, in one of my journals, I had written about the, the highest compliment that anyone could have paid to me at that time was, or really any time, was from a Cuban photographer who told me that when he looked at my work, he felt like I was Cuban, that I saw like a Cuban. And to me, that that meant so much. It really hit me in the heart because I felt I very much felt right at home in Cuba. I felt like I uh, like it was somehow a part of me in some way. I, I couldn't explain why. But um, I think through those friendships, I was let in in such an intimate way that I was able to to sort of have sensitivity to the culture that I might not have had I not known people personally. What surprised you when, when you got there and you started spending time and you started making photographs? What, what was something that you couldn't have anticipated going in? You know, I was very young and I, I think I was very impressionable. I, I think I romanticized revolution, to be honest with you. And I think that going there had a lot to do with wanting to see sort of this revolution that I would imagine in my mind, a spirit, a certain spirit of revolution. And I wrote in my journals and in my book that it's easy to romanticize revolution, but it's harder to live in its aftermath. And I think that was the biggest lesson that I kind of came away from all those years traveling in Cuba was just, um, I was surprised a little bit by how difficult sometimes life seemed. And although the beauty of the of the human spirit prevailed life nonetheless was constricted in many ways and and i felt the pain of that i i felt the the dichotomy between beauty and pain constantly there and it was eye opening yeah i'm my my parents are from dominican republic and um both of my parents came from you know very modest means and when i go back down there um I'm not. I'm not staying at the resorts. I'm staying usually with 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 family down there, and mm -hmm. it really is kind of interesting to see how important family friendship is, especially when you don't have a whole lot. And I think about what life like here is with all its abundance, 
And those very things seem to be lacking in so many people's lives. It seems like we accumulate so much stuff, and yet there are so many people that feel you know, incredibly lonely in their lives. And I go there with people who have so much less, and there's just an, an exuberance and appreciation for life. I suspect that that's probably something that you saw that, that you were down there, but I wonder how challenging it is to try and capture both sides of that in, in photographs, to show how, how difficult it is, but also to, to show that these people are not in, indulging in self-pity. What you are saying speaks so much truth to exactly my experience in Cuba. I mean, just what you're, what you are describing and sort of this awakening of like how amazing it is when you do experience people with so little making so much of life in, in a very pure and beautiful way. It's spiritual and it's a spirituality that, that transcends any kind of church or religion or belief. It's just, it's this spirituality of the human spirit and it's just so pure. And I often found that in Cuba and I sometimes, uh, would find it within the same frame, so to speak. I mean, photographically, like one of my images in particular that I shot on a train going across the country and, it was this woman sort of in this moment of, you know, long train ride and just kind of the struggle. It was like the struggle of life. It felt like what she embodied. And then right behind her were these two lovers embraced. And it just felt like that to me depicted Cuba in a nutshell, sort of just this, this, the pleasure, the pain, the sensuality, the beauty, the love, all all entwined in in some heartache and and struggle, and yet the the beauty that kind of prevails in that. And um, there really wasn't a day that would really go by where I wouldn't experience something from nothing, mm-hmm. beauty from from little, from very little. I mean, and what you're talking about, this loneliness that transcends in American culture today. And isolation just doesn't exist there. The the life is just pouring out onto the street. And it's really amazing. It's also such an inclusive culture, a, a kind of a culture based on inclusivity. And so, you know, whether that stemmed from something political, such as, you know, not wanting to be looked at as hiding something or closed, you know, you're, you're very open and open doors. And so one could articulate possibly intellectually and politically why the culture is the way it is. But as a visual person, as someone who's going there to photograph and to absorb a cultural, um, a culture through imagery and through my eyes, for me, my experience was on a visual plane And so many of my experiences, like whether it be walking down the streets and, you know, hearing, let's say some music, like one night I was walking down the street, I heard some music from, you know, around the corner and I kind of followed my ears. And what I saw was a room on street level with the door open, full of people gathered around as one person played on the guitar and they all waved me in and they said it was someone's birthday. They had a birthday cake. They handed me a beer and they're like, join us, you know. That's the culture of of inclusivity. I mean, a perfect stranger walking down the street and five minutes later I was I was in a party. 
And it just, um, it's a beautiful culture in that way. It's a very welcoming, warm culture. And it spoke to me. And I think that it's, uh, it's something that I miss. It's a, it's a aspect of community and culture and that, that sort of human spirit that I miss here in America. I wish we had that a little bit more here. You were photographing over the span of, of, of 10 years. And how did your perspective or, or the ideas about what you were doing, how did they evolve and change over that period in time? Yeah, I mean, they really did. And I feel like it was through writing in my journals that I could grapple with sort of this ebb and flow of conflicting thoughts uh, and and experiences and sort of writing through written word. I was able to process a lot more of what I was seeing visually. You know, I think that over the 10 years, I went from possibly a lot more of an optimistic uh, viewpoint to being very in tune to some of the suffering that was going on sort of under underlining. Um, and I think that's what made it even more remarkable that the human spirit could prevail because, you know, there would just be these quiet moments in the shadows that would sort of speak to me uh, in depth. Like one gentleman kind of pulled me aside and and was putting his hand kind of up to his nose saying, you know, the water's up to here and we're drowning. And I knew what he meant. And it's, and it's, it's this, um, it's overwhelming when you're starting a photographic project and you land in a place where it's, I guess I had sort of started the project in one, from one perspective and I allowed my mind to be open to absorbing sort of how that ebbed and flowed and changed over time. And so speaking to people in the shadows, in the quiet of night, my friends who would uh, confide in me, just speak their truth to me. Um, it was in those moments that I was just able to process and understand visually what I was seeing. So I could go a little bit deeper beneath the surface because there is a Cuba light so to speak, a Cuba surface, Cuba, that if one was going on a quick trip, they might get caught in a net of sort of surface Cuba to kind of reach that underneath layer. It takes, it takes listening and understanding some of the Cuban experience from just from time, from being there. And I think it's important to note that a lot of that suffering was not just strictly from the embargo, but, but the the reality reality was, is that when you started the project, it was just after the Soviet Union had stopped um, I guess subsidizing, for lack of a better word, um, economically the, the country, which had a huge, huge impact that uh, was made all the worse because of the, uh, the embargo. So that's, that's a lot of what you were witnessing when you were first down there. That's right. I mean, 1999, they were just, I mean, they were just starting to come out of the special period where uh, it was dire straits. And that's, you know, that's that time period where a lot of people were trying to flee on rafts. And it was just a horrible time of, of you know, star- starvation and suffering um, of the Cuban people. And it was a very dark time. And when I was there at age 25 um, and my young Cuban friends, you know, they their sort of upbringing was during that that darkest period of time. This is called the special period. And just coming out of that in 1999, I think that there was there was a lot of ramifications from that that time period. And 
So over the course of 10 years, things were getting easier and better because of time and some resources that were uh, available from, I think, some, you know, European investments, et cetera. But there, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I think I was catching Cuba right at a moment where they were just coming out of a very dark period. So that, that was part of that suffering too, of course, not just embargo, but but we had an effect on on Cuba as an American country, and it you know there it all plays a part. It all plays a part. Yeah. Well, one of the, the, the a lot of your work uh, over the years is has in, involved um, sustainable farming and, and food and, and you know that whole industry, and and it, and it harkens back to your time in in Cuba because part of what you were doing there is photographing farmers on their land. And can you tell us about what that experience was like and why it was had such an impact in, in the way that you saw food, our relationship to food, and, and, and how it's informed the work that you've done subsequently? Yeah, you know, it was, I think my time, you know, when I was traveling across country in Cuba, um, hitchhiking and sort of being very slow about it, I was able to embark on these farms and in the rural countryside. And I think that that is where I found the height of sort of the revolutionary spirit, so to speak. And just to witness the, just that the spirit in which people were growing food and caring for the land um, was really inspiring to witness. I think ultimately to um, this role of kind of animal husbandry and how people would treat their animals and they almost felt human-like and part of the family. And it was just, it was so different than the American upswing of like factory farming and this whole degradation of the land that was here happening here in such a you know, mass scale of industrialized farming. It, it became um, sort of apparent to me that there was this alternative way to grow food. And although it wasn't necessarily by choice, I mean, this was out of like subsistence farming, out of survival, Came this amazing um, mechanism to for sustainability, and really, at the time when I started this project, Cuba was on the radar for sustainability in their farming because Russia pulled out and you know took all the infrastructure for any kind of insta- in industrialized farming infrastructure. So it was really out of necessity that people started farming. Um, in a sustainable way, in an organic way, because they had to. But that really set a precedent for how much food could really be grown um, and how impactful that could be for a country like Cuba. Um, and I just, I felt, I felt like there was a beauty there that sort of transcended visually, but just in in the spirit of the of the people themselves. And that's where I really started to feel that from from the Cuban society. And it did shape sort of my awareness and how I would, you know, subsequently see farming in my own country, too. Have you ever shared your passion with photography with someone and then they ask you where they can go to see your work? And maybe you tell them that you're on Flickr or Instagram or, or Tumblr. But you know that even if they go to those sites, that they really won't get a full appreciation of what you're doing and what's really your best work. Having a website allows you to curate your own work. 
and to really show it off. I mean, just visit the Squarespace website and check out the examples that showcase Squarespace's awesome templates. You can see creative people who are not only showing off their best work, but are saying, this is who I am. This is my best. Being able to direct people to your own personal website is not just convenient. It also shows that you are taking enough pride in your work to find a home for it. Find out how easy it can be to do just that. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And it seemed to touch you in a very personal, personal way because when you when you describe not only seeing what you saw, but that you just saw a completely sort of different relationship between people and 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 the and the land and the dirt itself and and what they were growing out of the land, what they were consuming. When you describe it, uh, it's 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 not with a sort of typical objectivity of a, of, of a journalist. It seems like that. It really touched you in a very, very unique way. Well, you know, at the time I was just like romantically involved with a farmer, an organic farmer in the United States who I would later marry and have two children with. And so I was seeing farming in a very intimate and personal way at that time in my life. It was I was up close and personal to the to this realm of organic sustainable farming here in the United States. So my eyes were open to that in a way that that was very personal. And I think later it actually really was my last flight out of Cuba at the end of my project. I didn't know it would be the end, but I was on the way back home and I felt like I had been retaking my same pictures. I always wondered, mm. how do you know when you're going to end a project? How do you know when you're going to get off this, you know, carousel ride of of image making? And how do you know when to end a project? And I felt like the the end kind of chose me because I I felt like I kept retaking my same pictures, and it was sort of my time my time to go. And the Cuba I had known when I started really felt like it had changed by the end. And it was on that flight back that it came to me almost like a vision that I would turn my camera towards my own life, my own experience as a farmer's wife in the farm country and look at farming, sustainable farming, and the beautiful spirit of that world that surrounded me here. And it was just really in that moment that I felt like it it kind of became clear that it was time to focus closer to home on that. Yeah. Um, but it was really the inspiration from from the farms in Cuba that made me see the farms here in a different light. Uh, I, I want to go back a, a little, because soon after you came uh, from Cuba that you put together a portfolio of your uh, Cuban images, and you used that to get into the Eddie Adams workshop. And that was really in, uh, influential influence when you beginning your photographic career. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that story and, and why that was so important for, for you to begin your, your, your career as a photographer. Yeah. It, you know, I really owe my career to Eddie Adams because it was that Eddie Adams workshop that really like was the springboard to me becoming a professional photographer. It was after my first trip to Cuba, I came back with, you know, having been there for several months and 
um, and spent several weeks in a dark room creating a portfolio and submitted it to the Addie Adams workshop. And once I was accepted, I went. And so it was like, you know, chosen out of, you know, there's hundred photographers total chosen out of thousands who apply every year to get to go to this, um, remarkable upstate New York farm surrounded by all these top photo editors from New York. And it's sort of like photo boot camp. And it was there that I was given at the time it was slide film we were shooting on and we were given assignments, assignments that would be, you know, equivalent to what you'd have assigned to you in any kind of news arena. And so my assignment was ex-gang members of New York City who had been relocated to upstate New York to restart their life again. And it was really a story that I felt interested in and I felt like captivated by. I was, it was a little bit it was a little bit intimidating. It was exciting. And basically what they do is just drop you off in a van, <laughs> in a van, they drop you off at your location uh, with your gear and just be like, okay, we're coming back to pick you up at a certain hour. That was the boot camp, And so there I was in the, these upstate New York housing projects, roaming around with my camera and trying to capture the story. It was so amazing and so intense. And uh, people really, it was, it was almost like my experience in Cuba, wandering the streets and going in inside internal into people's lives and, and how to kind of facilitate those relationships in a quick and rapid way, um, where you're accepted and you're welcomed into people's homes. It was, it was those moments that kind of had prepared me that it was my Cuba experiences that had prepared me for the Eddie Adams experience. And then, And then it was Eddie Adams and that whole experience that would prepare me to become a photojournalist. And so it was from there that I then became uh, an AP shooter as a freelancer. I was a stringer for AP in Seattle. And then um, and then I would shoot, you know, go on to shoot for newspapers directly from all over, all over the world. They just call me. And so it was an exciting time and it was definitely All my experiences in Cuba had prepared me for that, but it was really the Eddie Adams workshop that really springboarded me into the professional realm and assignment realm because it was, it was high paced, high energy, needing to perform quickly, make something out of nothing. You had to have, you know, you had to have something good on the film and, um, and sort of, it felt like your life depended on it in a lot of ways. And then on the flip side, you want to do justice to the story and tell the story in an adequate way that would be intimate and revealing. You have another book. Uh, we're, we've been talking primarily about the, uh, the images that are now found in Cuba, black and white, but you have another book about sustainable farming. Tell us about the story that led up to that project and, and, and what you were focusing on with that. Yeah. So human nature sustainable farming in the Pacific Northwest was a body of work that I created after Cuba, but I had started it. I had started it kind of during Cuba in a sense. It was on my radar. I just hadn't dived into it with full force. Like I did once I was done with the Cuba project. Um, you know, it was, it, it was a subject matter. Like I said, that was very personal to me. It was my life. It was my world that surrounded me here in Washington. 
state. And it was my time to sort of turn my camera closer to home. I had just had my first child. I felt like it wasn't, I didn't want to leave her to go anywhere, you know, further than like 20 minutes from home. I didn't want to leave um, for weeks and months on end to go do stories far in far reaches of the earth. And I felt like, I felt like it was important to tell the story that I was witnessing right there in my own life. So I turned the camera sort of towards my own world and tried to kind of capture what this sustainable movement looks like from the inside. To me, it was always very compelling. It was, it was very intriguing. It was, it was beautiful. It was healthy. It was wholesome. It was inspiring. Everything about it felt like um, if people only could just see this as an alternative to mass consumption, to industrialized farming, to it, it could maybe have an impact. It was also at a time when um, Mark Bittman of the New York Times had written that basically, you know, the United States was going to hell in a handbasket, so to speak, with our health, that, you know, the childhood obesity rate was on the rise, that people's soda consumption was out of hand and that, um, and that the health of, of the people of the United States was failing and really was looking at those factory farms and industrial farming almost to blame. And it was at that moment that I sort of realized, well, wait a second, I'm living in this alternative world. If people could just see this from, from my standpoint, from how I'm seeing it visually, maybe we could create some kind of impact. Um, maybe it could inspire some kind of change. At least it could document what it is, this alternative farming movement, what, what it offers, what that vision could be. Yeah. So that was sort of the impetus to, to um, start photographing that world. And um, it became a very personal project, but it also, at the time, right, as I was just kind of, I was photographing, but I wasn't pouring 100% of myself into it. It was right at the time where I was feeling like, man, I, I need to write a grant. I need it to be somehow funded for this to be a reality. And then I could really give it my all because I was shooting film and it's an expensive project to do. And it was right at that time where I was approached to write a proposal for Aperture and the USA Television Network who were doing this um, big character of America campaign for television. And then they were going to make a book and a traveling exhibition. And I wrote my proposal and they accepted it. So I was one of nine photographers chosen for this project. And I was able to just give my all to this, to my vision, to finish out this story locally that I had been trying to work on for years, but never having the funding to do it. And so it really made it a reality to, to continue and to kind of finish the project. And then after that, was over. I I got the rest of my funding to finish the rest from a organization called Photo Document out of London, and we were able to do some really big um, installations, public arts installations, and have some impact on on community through public arts. Yeah. Well, you speak to one of the, the, the one of the big challenges of of people who want to do projects of the type that you you've just described because. Long gone are the days where magazines like you know Life and Look and you know would would, would dedicate you know pages to stories of of, of, the, of this type. And so photographers are really 
left to either fund these programs, I mean these uh, these efforts themselves, or you know solicit financing from you know from from organizations uh, like the ones you just mentioned. Can you can you speak to your own challenges in terms of being able to one you know one in one respect you're trying to earn a living as a photographer, but secondly you're also trying to tell stories that have meaning to you and with a, you know with a really strong desire to affect change. Yeah, you know, I think I was born in the wrong era. Like I I always wished that I was around during the time of the Farm Service Administration where people were, you know, paid to photograph anything they wanted around America to show really the real America, like what was happening. And that seemed to me like the most ideal job you could ever have. That carte blanche to sort of show us how you see, you know, mm-hmm. and just that faith that the editors would have had behind that movement. The closest thing to that feeling was this grant, was this, you know, this um, commission by Aperture and the USA Television Network, because they were basically saying, show us positive America, show us something positive in America that we can make a campaign around. And so when I said sustainable farmers, like that is, positive, as positive as you could possibly get. In fact, let's really, let's inspire some people to, to take this, you know, to, to see the beauty in this, to see somehow, some way that this could affect change in America. And so um, that, you know, that backing, that financial backing made all the difference in this project getting to happen or not. I mean, that is the reality. It's really hard for photographers now there isn't the Farm Service Administration, and commissions like that are very few and far between. So you do kind of get creative about how you piece together funding for any project one would want to do. You know, um, one of the impetus for you, you know, starting your career was because you wanted to affect affect change, and that's you know been part of your work throughout your your career. And you mentioned that you're 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 a parent, and I'm curious whether becoming a parent has changed the way you see that effective change as a result of your work? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, becoming a parent affects the way you see anything. <laughs> I feel like ultimately, <laughs> does it affect that, you know, that I, I'm not sure, you know, I, it's interesting. I don't know. It's, I can see the effect of the farm life that my kids have grown up with on their life. And I get to see it sort of through my imagery of them in that in that context. And I get to sort of that reality. But has it changed the way I see the world? I think there might be a more sort of do or die, do or die uh, feeling behind the fight for any kind of social justice, because you feel like I don't want my kids to grow up in this world right now that's like you know, with rot, with, with so much that Mm -hmm. if I, if I can do any piece, just one small drop in the bucket piece to somehow shed light on something positive about our culture, about our community, about our world in some way that inspires some kind of change somewhere, whether it's with one person, one community, one country, whatever it might be, I guess ultimately like that feels like a powerful tool of photography right there that, Oh my gosh, like we have this tool base at our disposal as, as photographers that we can somehow 
impact the world good. We can try, you know, there's no guarantee. It can just be, it can be the the motivation and the hope behind what we're doing. I think I tend to want to see things through a positive lens. I think that there's a lot of strife and struggle out there and a lot of things that I'd like to close my eyes to because they're, they're so awful. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like, I feel personally, like, if I can focus my camera towards what is positive, then maybe it would be contagious. Maybe we could somehow be inspired by positivity to to keep breeding and growing positivity. Yeah. And that's optimistic, but that's just the lens I, I want to see life through. Um, and it's not for everybody, but that might just be my my particular role for for this world, for this life. In, in putting together the, this book, Cuba, Black and White, going back, basically going back in time, looking at your body of work and, and, you know, and doing, making the edit for what eventually is found in, in this book, what was that experience like, sort of returning to an earlier part of your, your life and your career? Did you make any discoveries about who you were, how you saw, how you photographed when you were looking back at those images and deciding which ones were going to eventually be in the book. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, what a journey to, to do this. The editing process for this book was a real self-discovery journey because just to begin with, to look through hundreds and hundreds of contact sheets, it felt like going home again or visiting old friends. It was like, I knew everybody, you know, even, even if it was street photography, even if, if I didn't really, it was like, I remembered, I remembered their faces and I remembered where I was. It was, it was like a visual diary. So there was that. And then to, to kind of call out and scour through all my old journals, it was like getting to know the 25 year old me and sort of what my thought process was and sort of what, what was on my mind at that time. And there were things that kind of st- stood out to me of like where my where my mind was, what was inspiring me at the time, how was I seeing things like small poems I would write. Like one was um, within revolution, there's music, pianos are played, people dance, horses are cleaned and the movements of life happen. It's like the movements of life happen just jumped out at me on the page because that's how I was seeing at 25. And that's sort of how I see now too. I, I recognize myself, mm-hmm. you know, in those words and in those sentiments or in those thoughts. I, I feel like in a way it was uh, a coming of age to make this work and to write my thoughts down and to sort of somehow grapple with, the world. I mean, I think that even, I really think it was through the the writing of my journals ultimately that helped my, my mind process what I was seeing visually. Cause it was a lot, it was a lot for any young person to travel outside of their known world and um, try and really internalize what another culture is all about. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've 
recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? That's hard. It's hard to pick just one. There's so many that I feel like have inspired me over my life, you know, and it's hard. It's hard for me. There's there's the next generation up that for me, the, the older generation that inspired me, you know, and then there's my my contemporaries. And it's always hard to to say who. But I think I would say it would be important to, right now, I would say, look at the contemporary Cuban photographer's work and see, see what, see how Cubans are seeing their own culture. Because I do think the voice from within one's own home is really important too. And I would encourage people to go and, and seek those images out as well. My friend Leigh Cees, who's a photographer, a professional photographer in Cuba, does some beautiful pictures of her daughter, who's a ballerina, practicing just on their rooftop and within the Cuban society. And to me, those are beautiful imagery, images that are coming from Cuba today on sort of contemporary life in Cuba. That would be very inspiring, I feel like, for anyone to see. I think if I was to name someone from the generation above me who, you know, would have inspired somehow the way I see, I'd have to say David Allen Harvey, because he had the sort of guerrilla concept of photography, in my opinion, that was sort of like this one camera, one lens, go out and interact and interface with, with the people and getting close through through um, personal connection to people. And that, that really resonated with me. Yeah, I would have to, I'd have to say both, look at the older generation and look at the contemporaries who, who helped to shape sort of how we see the world today. And where can people go to find out more about you and your work? People who go to my website, uh, onamiadavidson.com. And I'm also on Instagram, Anamia Davidson. And um, yeah, like that. Well, Mia, and I'm, thank you so much for, for making time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I love your podcast and I appreciate that you're doing this. This is, um, it's been great to learn about other people's work through you too. Thanks again for joining me. If you are in the Los Angeles area on the weekend of the 13th, come join me at the Los Angeles Center of Photography, where I and some other street photographers will be doing presentations on the topic of street photography. It's an all-day event starting at around 11 o'clock, and you can find out more by visiting lacphoto.org. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod from the Clan McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>